You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. We're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 20 and 21. We're going to start reading right there in, um, let's just read the first six verses just to get some context, just to kind of get our minds into what's going to be happening for the next two chapters. And we read there, in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and I have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly, and before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And on the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, and we pray now as we dive into these chapters, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and understanding and that your spirit would just fill our hearts and minds to receive what you have to say to us this morning, that as your word goes out, it would accomplish in the lives of the people in this room and online what you have desired that we'll do. And we know, Lord, that you have promised it will not return void. And so we thank you for that promise here this morning. So on August 2nd, 1990, some of you might remember, Saddam Hussein attacked Kuwait setting in motion the war machine that was the United States and other allied forces to then come to the aid of Kuwait. Well, on August 6th of 1990, I shipped off to boot camp for the United States Marine Corps just four days later. And for the next 13 weeks, almost every day, it was made clear to me through a lot of shouting that uh, after my training, I would be going over to the Middle East and possibly die for my country and that I needed to take my training seriously and I needed to be ready. Now this pending war was not necessarily on the forecast when I signed my name on that dotted line. You know, I could probably say, yes, my recruiter lied to me. It was definitely, there was no war. But I was a Christian at the time and as much as I could be prepared, I believed this is where the Lord wanted me. Though I don't think my mom was very happy at the time. But for many guys in my platoon that I was training with, they were not prepared to die. This was a shock that we were now at war. They were not prepared to give their life for their country and go home. Their house was not in order, and they were faced with the real possibility that they could die in the next year. They had many questions. And so during the next 13 weeks, between a lot of sit-ups and push-ups and pull-ups and a lot of running, I had a lot of conversations about God and the Bible and answering a lot of their questions and preparing them and myself for the possibility that, that come the end of these 13 weeks, I would go over to a country I didn't know and die and go to, go to heaven. So this morning, we're going to look at two people and how they reacted when they were facing imminent death. One of them started really, really well, and he ended poorly. The other one started really badly, but 
he ended really well. What can we learn from these two men, these two kings, about being ready to go home? Home being heaven, of course, and, and heaven being forever with Jesus, where there's no more tears, there's no more sickness, there's no more COVID, there's no more death, and of course, there's no more taxes. April's around the corner. Because this place, you know, this world around us, this is not our home. I hope you realize this morning that this morning, this truth, this place, this place that we call home is not our home. First Peter 2 tells us we are sojourners. We are exiles in this place. Hebrews 13 in the New Living Translation, I like the way they put it. This world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home to come. Are you ready to go home? That is the title of our message this morning. If you are taking notes, are you ready to go home? Each week, Pastor Nick has been giving us a sentence that we can, that tries to sum up the central message of the text that we are looking at. And, and I have attempted to do the same. So write it down, maybe take a picture of it. If you have your phones and you have the version Bible app, if you go to events, you'll find Whitefields Community Church there. Just click there and you'd find it there with all the verses that we're going to cover today and any other verses or notes that I might have. And so try and memorize it. When someone asks, you know, hey, what did that guy talk about at church? And you'll be able to have an answer for them. So our sentence for today is holding on too tightly to the things of this world can diminish the value of our true home in heaven. But having an eternal heavenly perspective will cause us to value the gospel more dearly here and now. Holding on too tightly to the things of this world can diminish the value of our true home in heaven, but having an eternal heavenly perspective will cause us to, to value the gospel more dearly here and now. So let's look at that first part of that sentence, holding on too tightly to the things of this world. We're back here in chapter 20. And we continue with Hezekiah, and we read there in verse 1, in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. So when we read in those days, this is most commonly understood to mean that in these first few verses that we read in verses 1 through 11, this took place during the time of the Assyrian invasion that we looked at last week. So here we, we have him. He's facing death from without. He's facing death from within. And then it goes on. And Isaiah, the prophet of Amos, uh, son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. So after service today, if God spoke to you in this way, hey, calling you home, make things right. You're going to die. Set your house, set your affairs in order. What would your initial reaction be to that? You know, if you go out here, you get in your car in the parking lot after service today, and you're told that by the time you get home today, you are going to die. Is there a phone call that you would make or should make? Is there a prayer that you would pray or should pray? Is there a situation that maybe you would need to remedy? I know after a crazy year that we have all gone through, you know, some of us would probably, would, we'd, we'd welcome those words. We'd say, God says, hey, my child, I'm calling you home. And you're like, yes, Lord. Take where, when do we leave? You know, let's go. But some of you maybe, well, you said, you analyze what the Lord said. And you say, well, God said, by the time I get home, I'm going to die. And you say, well, I guess we're going to Nebraska to Applebee's for a long lunch. 
probably dinner, maybe breakfast. I have some things that I really need to sort out and I have to put in order. What would your reaction be? While reading on, we see Hezekiah's reaction there in verses 2 and 3. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed, prayed to the Lord, saying, O oh Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. So what was Hezekiah's reaction? Well, Lord, I don't want to die. I do not want to die. And he appeals to his faithfulness and to all the great things that he had done for the Lord. And let's not forget that Hezekiah had done many great things for the Lord. Back in chapter 18, verse 5, we, we read a few weeks past, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all of the kings of Judah, after him, nor among those who were before him. He had done away with all the many idols that were in Judah, and he had restored the worship of the true God of Israel in the temple there in Jerusalem. And one of the only kings, Hezekiah was one of the only kings that would take away and do away with the high places. We read many times about the high places where there was kind of this worship of idols and of the true God of Israel. Almost kind of like mixing together of religions there in that place. Like here on Sunday morning, if we were to have church here and you guys all go home and then tomorrow, well, the Buddhists come in and they do their service. And then on Tuesday, well, the Muslims come in and on Wednesday, the Hare Krishnas come in and whoever. That's kind of what the high places was all about. Mixing all of that together. And it was always a point of contention with God. But Hezekiah was finally a king who could truly be commended in this area. But starting here with his prayer and reading on, we will see that maybe, just maybe, there was a bit of a crack in his armor that he had begun to believe his own hype. That though he had such a remarkable reign as king, he did not finish well. And that would have repercussions, of course, that would affect generations to come. Again, if God spoke to you in your car after service and said, put your house in order, you are going to die. I'm sure most of us would react probably in a similar fashion that we see Hezekiah react. Maybe not appealing to our own faithfulness or to our greatness, but you know, Lord, what about my children? What about my husband? What about my wife? What about my family? What about my life? I've got goals. I've, I've got a future. You know, we're all invested in this life. You know, people that we love, people that we cherish, it's, it's hard not to be invested in this life. You go to work day in and day out. And even Paul the Apostle lamented there in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be, the, be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. But in contrast to Paul's, Paul's statement there, Hezekiah's prayer seems so selfish. And it was. And as we read there in verse 4, God is going to answer his prayer, though. But before we read these verses, I, I want to pose a question to you. A question. Do you, do you think that it is easier to follow the Lord if our lives are under siege by the Assyrians, so to speak, or when we are being praised for our successes and our accomplishments? Which one's easier? Can, can the things that we wish for ultimately be our downfall? 
something to think about as we go through these passages here. And I don't think it's necessarily a yes or no answer either, but let's read on there in verse 4. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you on the third day. You shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for my servant's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. God tells Isaiah, tell Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer. Let's, and let's give credit where credit is due. We don't want to be too hard on Hezekiah today. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. In his struggle with the Assyrians, the past two chapters, we see that, that Hezekiah laid it all out before the Lord. He, he always turned his face towards the Lord, and God answered him. God says, I have heard. I have heard your prayer. I'm going to give you 15 more years. Not only that, I'm going to deliver you and the city out of the hand of Assyria. And this was a complete confirmation of Isaiah's prophecy back in chapter 19, verse 34. God said he would defend Judah, and he did just that. So, okay, we're back in your car again. We're spending a lot of day, time in your car this morning. Back in your car again. After service, God spoke to you and said, when you get home today, you are going to die, and you weep bitterly, of course, my children, my husband, my wife, my family, my life. And the Lord, in his mercy, he replies, he says, okay, you have 15 more years. I have granted you 15 more years to live your life. Well, questions, questions. Again, what, what, will, what will you change between today and February 28th in 2036, which is 15 years from today. What will you change between today and February 28th of 2036 in regards to these, your children, your husband, your wife, your family, your life? How will your life be different? How would your priorities change? Those things that you spend, your, you, you invest your time in. Those things you invest your time in. And just a a thought on time as I was studying this, this idea of time, you know, coming up all the time, God gives Hezekiah more time. I just thought about time for a bit, and I realized time is not very friendly. It doesn't stop for anybody except for the Lord. It just keeps passing you by. And worse than that, it just keeps taking from us, and it never gives back. And it also has these empty promises like, well, time will tell, or time will heal, or there will be time for that. Time does nothing but leave you and I behind. Nothing. It's what we do with our time that counts today and in this life. And coming into the house of God this morning to worship or tuning in online is a great use of our time. Time spent in seeking the Lord always pays dividends for the future. And God has given you and I today. Maybe there's some things that you need to take care of today. If you don't know him, if you're in this room today and you, you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you have not repented and submitted your life to Jesus, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And don't leave here today without praying with somebody to be saved. But then Hezekiah says there in verse 8, he says, I need a sign. What shall be the sign that God will heal me? How will I know that I'm going to be healed? 
And I think here again, it's easy to fault Hezekiah for essentially saying, well, God, you need to prove yourself. Prove yourself. How will I know that you're going to heal me and extend my life? It should be enough that we believe God at his word, right? Isaiah prophesied it. Hezekiah should have believed it. But maybe, maybe he was holding on too tightly to the things of the world. I don't know. For us, though, it should, maybe it should for us be enough that God said, I love you. But we know he did so much more. It says there in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? He demonstrated his love for us, gave us a sign. But God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, which we'll, we celebrate through communion every, every week, we can have new life. Today can be a day redeemed for the glory of God because of that, a day lived with his priorities in mind, not because anything that you and I have done, but by grace and grace alone. And God, in his immense love and grace, gave us a sign in Jesus. And in his grace and mercy, he gave Hezekiah a sign there. If you read there, continuing in verses 8 through 11, I'll just summarize for, for you. Basically, God just basically turns back time. He causes the sundial to go back 10 steps, which, which is very symbolic in a way, because by causing the shadow of the sundial to go backwards, it gave more time in that day, just as God gave Hezekiah more time. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read all the verses through the rest of the chapters, but I will attempt to summarize them for you. But they are important to us and revealing to, to show us that the glory of God had been diminished in the life of Hezekiah for the sake, unfortunately, of his own glory. And this brings us to the second part of our sentence. Holding on too tightly to the things of this world can diminish the value of our true home in heaven. Can diminish the value of our true home in heaven. So to summarize, we, can, we start here in verse 12 that there's this Babylonian envoy arrives sent by Merodach Baladon, king of Babylon, with letters and gifts congratulating you know, Hezekiah on, on his recovery. You know, bringing him flowers there in the hospital or something. You know, most Bible scholars kind of believe also that they were also there to congratulate him on his victory over the king of Assyria. And we're hoping to form, you know, some kind of alliance going forward for, for mutual protection. Because in their eyes, as far as they were concerned, this little upstart little nation of Judah had just, you know, overcome 185,000 Assyrians and left them dead on the battlefield. That was something to reckon with. Better to ally with them. So Hezekiah, he gives them a whole tour of his kingdom, showing off his riches and his wealth, much of which was probably gained by, by the, the, the victory over the Assyrians, you know, uh, going out there and getting the spoils of war. And it says there at the end of verse 13, there was nothing in the house or in the realm that Hezekiah did not show to them. Now, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with necessarily giving some visiting guests a tour of the palace, right? We all do that when we have guests over who haven't been to our house before, right? When Monica and I have guests over, I always take them down to our 1970s basement with the lime green shiplap and the brown shaggy carpet and the tropical island murals painted on the walls. You know what I'm talking about. And I tell the same joke every time. Don't be surprised if you run into William Shatner down here. And I only get laughs if it's older generation, but 
But as you know, as we read on there in verse 14, we see Isaiah question Hezekiah about these men. Like, who were they? Where were they from? What were you doing with them? What were you showing them? And Isaiah's reaction and word from the Lord reveals to us that God was not too pleased with Hezekiah for doing this. And you read down there, Isaiah prophesies to Hezekiah that all those things that he had shown to the Babylonians would one day be taken away by the Babylonians and carried off to Babylon, including some of his own sons. They would be taken captive and they would be made to serve in the palace of the king of Babylon. So why did God react so harshly to Hezekiah? Well, 2 Chronicles 32 gives us some insight into this. So if you just keep your finger there in chapter 20 of 2 Kings and you turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, I'm sure many of you have figured out that there are a lot of parallels between 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. And we have referenced the books of Chronicles many times over the course of our study of 1 and 2 Kings. And many times we have greater insight into uh, into certain stories about certain kings. And here we're going to do the same is true. We're going to learn more about Hezekiah and his reaction to being healed and proudly displaying his kingdom to the Babylonian envoy. And we read there uh, in chapter 32, and we're going to start in just uh, verse 24. Uh, in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that Hezekiah had robbed God of his glory and had become puffed up in pride. Maybe he thought that, that God had healed him because of his righteousness in restoring true worship in Jerusalem. And from his prayer, we might, we might maybe be able to make that conclusion. Maybe he took credit you know, for the victory of the Assyri over the Assyrian king. They're proudly displaying all the spoils of his kingdom. Whatever it was, the, the Bible tells us he had become puffed up with pride. You know, and in our vernacular, he kind of believed his own hype and had not given God the glory due his name in the presence of Judah or in the presence of the Babylonians. You know, holding on too tightly to the things of this world had diminished the value of God in his heart. Remember I asked you that question before? Well, we have many questions, but this one. Do you think it's easier to follow God in the trial or in the success? Do you think it's easier to follow God in the trial or the success? And in the case of Hezekiah, he had victory in the trial, but he had failed at the success. And I know this has been my experience. Maybe it's been yours as well. And in the trials, we seem to long more for our heavenly home, we become acutely aware that this life is just temporary. And so much of what we learn, count, some of what you count dear, is really not that important. In the trial, we cling to God and to the things of God so much more. Just like Hezekiah, when he was faced with that impending doom of, of the king of Assyria was knocking on his door, he laid it out there before the Lord in complete humility and submission, just like we learned last week. And I always like to say that I'd rather be in the boat with Jesus in the middle of the storm, being tossed back and forth than on the shore without him. Now, back in 2 Kings, if you had your finger there, back in 2 Kings chapter 20, we continue. We come to verse 19. Now, verse 19, I think, is the, the last piece of the puzzle that kind of shows us that all was not right 
with Hezekiah in his last days. It says there in verse 19, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, after all of this, all of this uh, uh, prophecy from Isaiah about impending judgment, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, well, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. Well, that seems like quite a sad and unusual response, doesn't it? God announces his coming judgment on the nation of Judah because of the pride of Hezekiah's heart. And all he could respond with was relief that it's not going to happen in my lifetime. Somewhere along the line, he had become self-centered. And this verse was kind of troubling to me because I see myself in it sometimes. My inclination to say, well, that doesn't affect me, so I can't be bothered. That doesn't affect me. I can't be bothered with that. And this sin in my heart, this inclination sometimes is the antithesis of the gospel that I believe in. It's the antithesis of biblical ministry. I want to be more like Moses, who advocated for the people when God was, he was done with them. They were complaining in the desert. But Moses advocated for the people with, or Isaiah, who said, Lord, send me. I will go and advocate for the people. Or Jesus, the righteous one, it says in 1 John chapter 2, the righteous one who is the advocate for us, before God the Father. So when Hezekiah, he was told this judgment on Judah, he did not cry out in humility as he had done when he was faced, when he faced the king of Assyria back there in chapters 18 and 19. Instead, he became an advocate for himself and for his own success. How can we learn from this? How can you and I learn from this? How can you and I finish this race called life well, being being concerned for, the, for this generation and, of course, the one to come, especially when there's so much to tempt us and distort our focus away, pull us away from the things that are really important. This is the third part of our sentence. Holding on too tightly to the things of this world can diminish the value of our true home in heaven, but having an eternal heavenly perspective will cause us to value the gospel more dearly here and now. Here we come to chapter 21. Hezekiah has since died, and his son Manasseh has begun to reign. We read there in verses 1 and 2, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So Manasseh was born in the last 15 years of Hezekiah's life. Yes, those last, those extra 15 years that God granted to Hezekiah and Manasseh, he was a bad, bad man. He was the worst king that Judah had ever seen. The worst king that Judah had ever seen. All that Hezekiah had restored, his, his son Manasseh destroyed. And you can read it there in the following verses, there in verses 3 through 7. It goes, he rebuilt the high places that his father had destroyed. He, he erected altars for Baal, and he made an Asherah. And he, he worshipped the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the, in the house of the Lord. He built, built, he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he, and he burnt his son as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and nem, uh, necromancers. 
Horrible things, horrible things. He, he introduced astrology to the people, the, the worship of, of the sky there, as we read, which is kind of the latest and greatest trend put forth by the Babylonians during that time. And before this, most of the, before this, most of the idol worship that we read about had been, you know, had been confined to those high places. But Manasseh, he brought it into the temple of God. Even worse than that, he erected a carved image of Ashereth inside the temple. And Ashereth, and you, we probably, we've probably covered this before, but was the Can Canaanite goddess of fertility, which essentially turned the temple of God into a brothel and a place of ritual prostitution. It was horrendous what he did. And the people seemed just too happy to go along with it. We read there in verse 9, but they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And this would prove, of course, to be the ultimate undoing of Judah. God says there in verse 11 and 12, he says that I'm going to uh, completely because Manasseh has done this evil, I will bring a disaster on the ears of everyone who hears of it. They will, their ears will tingle. The, the disaster, people's ears are going to tingle when they hear. The nations around are going to be shocked at the judgment that God brings upon Israel. And Judah would ultimately suffer the same fate as Israel, the northern kingdom did who have already been carried away because of their sin, because of their idolatry, have already been carried away into captivity, as we will learn there in the final chapters of 2 Kings. Manasseh did everything he could to completely desecrate the memory of his father and of the true God of Israel. One commentator commented that, that if Hezekiah had known that his son would be so evil and that, would, and that he would destroy his legacy, that he might not have been so eager to recover from his sickness, but rather succumb to it. It says there in verse 17, though, we, we read on. Verse 17, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that, that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Well, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. And we're going to go over there and read this. So if you haven't kept your place there, maybe, we're going to go back to Second Chronicles chapter 33, just one chapter over. Because if you go there to verse 10 of 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we see that Manasseh's story does not end. We see an amazing story of repentance and redemption. God had attempted to speak to the people, to Manasseh, to bring them to repentance. But there in verse 11 of chapter 33, we see that he is taken away captive and hauled off to Babylon. And this is what we read the and this is what we read in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 33 of 2 Chronicles. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty, and heard his plea, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I love that. He knew that the Lord was God. And by God's grace and God's mercy, Manasseh comes back to Jerusalem. He comes back to Judah as the king. And when he does that, he tries to restore all that he had destroyed. You can read it there in the following verses there. Uh, Chapter 13, I mean, chapter 33, verse 13 on. He, he attempted to restore all that he had destroyed and to clean up the temple, to get rid of the idols. He attempted to turn the people back to the true God of Israel. 
In the end, though, unfortunately, it would not be enough. The effects of his past sin would have far-reaching consequences for the future, ultimately causing you know, the kingdom of Judah to be carried away into captivity. And maybe that's just a lesson that we can take away, that even though we have repented, sometimes our past sin and our actions can still cause pain in the present. And, and I think that's true. But God is gracious, isn't he? To walk us through that and mercifully stand beside us as we deal with those things and we submit those things to him in humility. So two, two men, two kings... One started off great, but ended poorly. One started very badly and ended in the right way. Holding on too tightly to the things of this world can diminish the value of our true home in heaven. But having an eternal perspective will cause us to value the gospel more dearly here and now. So we've seen, though, that towards the end of his life, Hezekiah was fixated on the things here on earth. Manasseh started that way, but he eventually obtained a heavenly perspective, a glorious restoration through repentance. He knew that the Lord was God. And when we know that the Lord is God, that, that knowledge frees us up to be people that God, to be those people that God has called us to be. We're no longer, we no longer fear death. It's no longer that great unknown that it once was. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory, O death? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have that heavenly perspective because of him. It makes the gospel come alive in your life, come alive in, in your life, right? It, it governs your waking up and your lying down. This place is not our home. But God, but God has, has me and he has you here for a purpose, to be the message of the gospel for this, this generation and for the generation to come because he does care about their future. He can be bothered and show should we. God is in the business this morning of transforming the mess of our lives into something beautiful. Beauty from ashes. And even through that mess that was the reign of Manasseh, even through that mess, the destruction that he wrought on Judah, God would bring, bring the promised Messiah, Jesus. Jesus would come from the line of David through Manasseh. You can read it there in Matthew chapter 1. Beauty from ashes. This is the story of the gospel. This is the story of our salvation in Jesus. The sin of our lives being redeemed in death and resurrection of our, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, that, and that's what, what gives our lives meaning and purpose. And when our time, when our time is up, we will then spend eternity with him. Aren't you looking forward to that day? Because I know that I am. Until that day comes, though, we let us spend our lives cherishing the gospel and letting its truth define our lives. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 